When we had uh, Macy, uh, this was our second child, and sometimes the second children come a little faster than the first, first child. Um, and uh, so all of a sudden, uh, Marty's like, I think I'm pregnant. Or Nope, she knew she was pregnant. I think, I think it's time. I think it's time. And I was like, cool, like we got some time. Last time, like it was like, you know, like 14 hours between when I think it's time and, and having the baby. And um, so I'm like taking my time, grabbing bag, you know, trying to, get, trying to get ready, starting to get ready. She's like, no, no, it's like legit, like it's time right now. We need to leave. So jump in the car, you know, as fast as we can to the, to the hospital without breaking every traffic law um, and get to the hospital and of course, in the car the whole way, you know, she's screaming at me, I'm about to have this baby, and I'm just thinking, I don't even know what I'm going to do if we have this baby on the side of the road. This doesn't feel like this is a smart idea. Um, I don't know a lot about, like, like surgical hygiene, but I'm just guessing this is not an oppor- the perfect moment for this to happen. Um, I know, like, they had babies in barns, like, for, like, lo- a long time, so it probably would be okay, but I still just didn't feel like that was what I was hoping for. Um, so we rush to the hospital. We get there. Things are like frantic. I run inside, grab a uh, wheelchair, run it back outside, and put her in the wheelchair and go running in. On my way in, I screamed, my wife is pregnant. She's having the baby right now. Ran back out with, got her. As I came back in, this like unbelievable nurse, she's like, you know, like a, just ready for whatever is thrown at her. Uh, you know, there's I'm sure some of these kinds of people in every workplace, but this woman was all over it. She pushed me out of the way, grabbed hold of the wheelchair, and started sprinting down the hallway. And she is just whispering in Marty's ear, you're not having a baby right now. You're not doing it. It's not happening. And then on her, like, like uh, she had a uh, walkie-talkie, and she's yelling commands into the walkie-talkie to get things ready where she's going. And because it was, like, in the late, we had to go through a side door, so there was, like, a long way to get to the maternity area. And she's, you know, get the ready and get, get this ready and have this ready and do this and do that. And then she's, like, whispering to Marty. Like, it was unbelie- um, amazing how she's just kind of, like, managing these two worlds. And I'm just running behind her full of adrenaline, right? Like, just, like, I'm jacked, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just ready to, like, lose my mind. And... So we're just running, and then all of a sudden we get to this elevator we got to jump in, and the elevator door closes, and it's just like, do, 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 ding, boom, we're on a sprint again out of the elevator, and she's just yelling, we're not having the baby, we're not having the baby. We go right through the maternity area into the room, and the baby is in our hands in about four minutes. Um, It was a really... Close call, and, and Marty's a champion. Uh, if anyone doesn't know this, my wife's a champion. Um, and, you know, the, the moment, like, happened so fast, and I was, like, so full of adrenaline that, like, I ended up, like, the, the Macy comes out, and they're like, hey, Dad, do you want to cut the umbilical cord? And I'm holding Marty's hand, but I'm actually on the ground just weeping at that moment. Like, there's so much adrenaline. I don't know what's happening in, in that moment, and I'm, I'm a big baby anyways, but um, I'm just glad it wasn't me who had to deal with all the stuff that she was, you know, dealing with physically, but uh, today's uh, passage looks like that elevator ride, okay? We're going from uh, an angel of the Lord coming, and well, first the darkness, the, the last two uh, plagues are darkness and then uh, the, the plague of the firstborn, and the darkness is a direct assault on, on Pharaoh. It's like, hey, you are a representative of Ra, the sun god. You're a representative of light, really, essentially. You are 
You are worshipped as a God who brings light to the, the, uh, the Egyptian world. And the sun is everything to them. It's their crops. It's their livelihood. And all of a sudden, this darkness, this overwhelming darkness comes upon them. And it's a terrifying uh, situation for them, right? And then the plague of the firstborn. And you have the uh, Israelites spared because they're willing to obey God and they take the blood of a lamb, and they paint it on the door frames of their homes, and this angel of the Lord passes through and takes the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but the, uh, the Israelites are spared uh, in that. And, you know, so you have this incredible uh, action sequence, essentially, if you're following the story, and then, you know, they are pushed out of town, and then all of a sudden we have this elevator scene, this uh, pause in the action. There's, a, there's a, a moment here where it goes from just this intense moment, just this intense lead up of all these plagues and, and pushing people out of town, and then all of a sudden it's just like it stops, and there's a reminder to stop, to stop, and to worship, and to remember. And then it picks right back up, because next week, like spoiler alert, um, they're going to be caught at the ocean, and the sea's going to part for them so they can walk across dry land and they're going to watch the army following them that wants to, you know, take them back is going to be swallowed up into the ocean. Like, it's blockbuster on both sides. But in the middle, there's this moment here. And I, I just wonder, as, like, as we look at our schedules in our lives, um, and there's a, there's a real warning here, you know. I think with COVID, we had kind of a, um, it, it, at times it was slow and boring. There wasn't a lot of stuff going on. And maybe that was good. Maybe you had a lot of great family time. Maybe there was like a lot of opportunity to spend time with people one-on-one or in small groups. And now all of a sudden it feels like life is ramping back up at like full speed. And all of a sudden we don't have the same ability to pick and choose the things we should be doing or to make the decisions on. We're just going to go full speed again all the time, 24-7. And I think God reminds his people today and probably reminds us that you, you can't go on adrenaline all the time. If you go on adrenaline all the time, if your life is a blockbuster from beginning to end and it never, ever stops, it actually, all it does is absolutely wear you out and make you useless for the kingdom of God. You don't have capacity to be able to give to other people. You don't see the opportunities that are right in front of you. you, don't, you don't, you're not ready to be used by the Holy Spirit when you have nothing left because you've poured everything out already and you've been living on on adrenaline, you find yourself on the ground weeping when you should be embracing that baby, right? That's essentially uh, where we're at. And so God stops them on the way, and he says, we're going to have a festival, and I'm going to teach you how to worship, and I'm going to show you some of these principles that are really important, that you need to stop in between all the crazy things that are going on in your life and make sure that you focus on these things right here, okay? And so I'm going to pick the story up again with 31. I'm going to read through it quick, and I'm going to help you see that what God is doing is teaching his people to manage their schedules, to manage their, uh, the effort that they're putting out on a, uh, through this entire thing and to stop and make sure that they're worshiping even in the midst of the craziness, right? So 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said and go. And also, bless me. I'll let you go if you bless me is what he's saying. The Egyptians used, uh, urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. The Egyptians have gotten to the point where they understand the next plague is going to be worse than the last one. They have ramped up 
right? And God has essentially destroyed every single God that the Egyptians had and said, I am more powerful, I am greater than any of these things. The Egyptians, a lot of the stuff that they worshipped were the things that they saw around them in nature, as you can see. They were, you know, tied up to the, the, you know, the, the river Nile and the sun and all the animals and things around them. They began to worship the things that they found in nature. And God doesn't, he doesn't just free his people. He destroys the entire uh, religious system of Egypt on the way out of uh, taking his people out of Egypt. In fact, the people are at the point where they don't care what Pharaoh does. They're like, get these people out of here. We can't have them here any longer. Not only did we were terrified in the black darkness, but, but also he took the firstborn of every single one of these families. Like, we, we, we want you guys to go. Please go. And on your way out, we're going to give you everything we have so that we don't offend your God, right? God is not just freeing his people. He's destroying his enemy. I, I just want you to stop and say that, like, look at that for a second. Like, God doesn't just, just let you out of sin. He wants to destroy sin. He wants to destroy the things in your life that hold you down, that keep you in slavery. He doesn't want you to just be able to walk away from them. He wants them gone. He wants them destroyed in pieces when you walk away. So it says, the people took their dough before, and you're like, what is all this about dough? What is going on here? The people took their dough, and it, by the way, this is bread dough, not, not, not money. I made that joke of myself, and it wasn't very good. So <clears throat> they took their dough before the yeast was added. They carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs. They wrapped in cloth. The Israelites did as Moses instructed. Again, here we go. Obedience is what we're looking for. This has been one of the themes of the entire book. And asked Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, and so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. So... Um, I just like stop for a second. You, okay, fast forward to when they're in the wilderness and they make a golden calf. Where did that gold came, come from? It came from the Egyptians. Fast forward to when they build the temple and they gild everything in gold. Where does that gold come from? It comes from the Egyptians. And I don't care where you stand on the, uh, the, the justice uh, spectrum. God is emptying out the wealth of a group of people who have enslaved a whole nation, and handing it back to the people who were enslaved, who created that wealth for them. God is bringing about justice in this moment where the slaves are being given back the wealth that they created that was built on their backs for the last 400-ish years. God doesn't, he doesn't leave things un, unjust. He, he fixes injustice. Now, it not, might not always be on our timeline, but he's not a God who, who looks away from injustice. He's a God who repairs, who restores, who fixes, who brings about uh, justice in the situation. And so, you know, you could say they, they plundered the Egyptians, as it says here, but I would say God restored the wealth that Israel created for Egypt, restored it to them on their way out of town. And to the to the size and scope of, it was essentially everything the Egyptians had. They wanted to make sure that the Israelite, the God of Israel, wasn't going to continue to take it out on them. Okay, that, that is what, what we're looking for. And then it says, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to, to Succoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. 
Uh, many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, flocks, and herds, and they also uh, brought their dough. But I just take, take, I want you to think about, okay, just in this room right here, if we just were like, hey, let's get up right now and let's walk to Duluth. How long do you think it takes us to get to Duluth? If we just decide we're going to get together and we're just going to take a walk, we're going to go to Duluth, even if there's a cloud in front of us that's just showing us where to go, which we'll see here in the next chapter, even if like, we don't have to like, do anything really difficult to figure out who's going to lead this group or how to communicate to this group, how far do you think we get, do we get there, and how long does it take? Well, what, do you, what do you think, like weeks? Yeah, do you think it would take a week? It's 150 miles. Yeah, that's a little bit too long, right? We take all the children with us, all the infirmed people who are here with us, all the non-active middle-aged men who are out of shape with us. Uh, How far do we get? Okay, so in the middle of the night, uh, it says there were 600,000 men. We can extrapolate that and guess, but most scholars would say it's somewhere between like 1.2 and 1.5 million people. That would be half of the Twin Cities walking all the way to Duluth together. We, we haven't even seen the biggest miracle. That's the biggest miracle. Like, I, there are people who throw the entire story out not because of the plagues, not because of the darkness that came over Egypt, not because of the, the, the plague of the firstborn, not because of, you know, all the other stuff that went with it, the, the Nile turning to, to blood. They throw it out because they think, There is no way 1.5 million people could walk 150 miles together and do it in a time frame that would make any sense. But that's exactly what what happened. That they they got up in the middle of the night, they grabbed whatever they could, they took everything they could from the Egyptians, all of their flocks, including some faithful Egyptians, it says. There were people with them that were not uh, Israelites, they were just extra people who decided to go with them. They had seen enough, and they believed in God, and they were willing to go with the Israelites as they left the land. And they walk 150-ish miles. Now, it doesn't give us a time frame, so we don't exactly know how long this took. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say these people were probably more uh, acclimated to walking long distances than we are, so maybe it went better for them than it does, it does for us. But still, this is in and of itself is a miracle. And all we get is one little verse. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. And most of the time, we just move on from that. We think, oh, it's probably like 20 miles, and it was probably tough, but it got worked out. Uh, it's a gigantic deal. It says many other people went with them, non-Israel Israelites, and they took huge droves of livestock, flocks, herds, and... 39, with the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the the length of the the time the Israelites' people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, this very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night and brought them uh, out of Egypt. And on this night, the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. And, you know, you're like, what, what is the story with the bread, right? And you're going to see that as we get further into here. But because they left in such a hurry and weren't able to put yeast in the bread, then the bread never rose. And so what they ended up eating on their way to getting out of town was essentially what we would see today as what we would call matzah. 
right? Like it was basically unleavened bread, bread that hadn't risen. So bread that was, you know, kind of lame, right? Like it's not something you want to like get excited about. It's just like some bread that's crusty that doesn't, that's not really bread, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever had like that non-carb bread or the, the bread that's like gluten-free and you eat it and you're like, this ain't really bread. It doesn't taste like bread. I don't really, I'm not getting that same thing. This is essentially what happened. They're stuck eating uh, on their way this like unfinished uh, bread. And, you know, you, you think that that's like, why is this in here? Well, it becomes a big deal and part of the ritual of stopping and celebrating here with the uh, the festival that they're going to throw. And then there's a section here, uh, 43 all the way to 51, where essentially, um, you know, the Israelites are told, look, when we celebrate and when we worship God, this is a, th- a thing that's d- designed for people who are in the covenant with with God. And so these restrictions on having people as part of the Passover meal or part of the, the Passover uh, celebration uh, are things that really, it, it's to... It's to accentuate the idea that there are people in the covenant and people out of the covenant. And they practice this so that they remember that we are lucky to be in the covenant with God. And it's better that we're not the people who are out of the, the covenant with God. And what's, what's crazy about today, you know, I think there's a lot of us, we maybe grew up in, in the church. We kind of have this, like, relationship with the church. And we've kind of found our way into, as adults, into a church. And now we're, we're kind of connected. But... There is a relationship that you have with God through the collective community of people that you belong to. But there's also a personal relationship that goes for every person. Like there's a moment where you have to turn over your own will to Christ's will, and you have to be brought into the covenant. I think that that's really hard to articulate for a lot of people when they actually accepted Jesus personally. But yeah, you can be part of a community, and we can you know, kind of bring you in and treat you like you're part of the covenant, but you're the only one that knows on the inside if you've, you know, given over your will to Christ, if you've personally received uh, that you're part of the covenant with, with Jesus. And so what they're saying here to the Israelites is, look, this is for covenant people. This meal, this celebration, this festival that we're going to throw, this is for covenant people, for people who know Jesus. And I never want to kind of gloss over that because Jesus himself says in the end times there will be people who you know will come to me and say Lord we served you we did things in your name we we you know we we heal people and and we serve people in your name and and so you know and Jesus will look at them and say I don't know you personally sure you did a great job serving my name but you didn't know me as a as a personal God I think there's a lot of us who would rather keep God out of certain areas of our life and say, I'm not going to let Jesus into these places. I'll come and I'll do the thing and I'll try to keep him happy with my activity. But in reality, I don't have a personal relationship with him. And I don't know how more simply to put that. If you're somebody who doesn't know whether you have a personal relationship with, with God or you're somebody who thinks that that's a foreign concept, what I'm talking about is a foreign concept to you, then after service at our prayer station, come on over and let's have a conversation. And let's make sure that you're clear on where you stand with, with God because it's paramount. It's the most important thing. And if we glaze over it and miss it, we're not doing justice to the good news of Jesus. The good news is that you can have a personal relationship with God. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be in a community of people that support you and love you and push you on and, and cause you to even become even better. But like, it starts with a personal relationship. I'm going to go to 14.1 if you're following me back there. Good luck. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, 
consecrate to me every firstborn male. So he's like, hey, we're going to have a festival. We're going to stop in the middle of this. Yes, I know I just wiped out the firstborn of all the uh, Egyptians, which, by the way, you know, you could look at that. And again, you want to talk about justice. Uh, the, the males of Israel have been thrown into the Nile River for the last 80 years. There's been a, a, a absolute, uh, you know, horrible place to be as an Israelite having a baby in Egypt because they would steal the baby and throw it into the river because that's what the Pharaoh wanted. The Pharaoh wanted to squash the Israelites. So you look at this and you think, okay, they've been throwing Israelite babies into the river for 80 years and then God comes in in his righteous justice and takes the firstborn of every person. Uh, in, in Egypt. And you look at that and you think, okay, the darkness was a direct assault on Pharaoh. The, the firstborn was a direct assault on the future of Egypt. Not only did that affect the lineage of, of the Pharaoh, but it also affected the future uh, pros- prosperity of Egypt in general. Without this entire generation of firstborn, what was going to happen as they aged out and took over Egypt. It was going to be a completely different world now that God had stepped in and done this. Um, God makes things right eventually, and he doesn't do it in our way, and he doesn't do it in our time, but he is a God of justice. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. And again, this is connecting back to the idea that they ran out of Egypt without putting yeast in their bread. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the ites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, the best land there is, you are to observe this ceremony in this month and for seven days you'll eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. You'll eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I did do this because what the Lord did for me when he came out of Egypt. This ob- observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. And today the Jews still do this. My father-in-law is a pastor in Massachusetts. And he has a relationship with a a, a Jewish uh, rabbi in town. And when the festival begins, the rabbi gets all the bread in his home. And he brings it over to my father-in-law's house and he gives it to him. Because he, he trusts him as a Gentile. They have a relationship. And he donates all of his bread so that not only he can enjoy what's left, you know, that, that they still have. But also he can get it outside of the bounds of his home, which is essentially what this says to do. To get rid of all the yeast out of your home completely. Now with my kids, I'd probably find a role somewhere in the house where it wasn't supposed to be. A couple days after, I was supposed to get rid of all the yeast. That's just how it rolls in my house, right? But, but this is, seems like a weird thing to do. It seems like a weird thing. But God is essentially giving them a way to remember 
his mighty hand and his mighty act. What we did in communion is another example of a chance for us to remember what is most important, that Jesus died for us. God builds these, these moments of remembering into our, our, uh, you know, our relationship with him and into the rhythms of how we follow Christ. It's why, I mean, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But we stop in, at Christmas time and we remember the birth of Jesus. Right? I, I, we stop again in April or March or, or whenever Easter is in that year and we remember that Christ died on a cross. Like we, we do this. We, we, we have to stop and remind ourselves because we're terrible at remembering. The first chance we get, we go back to serving ourselves. We go back to comfort. We go back to doing things our way. And we find ourselves drifting away from God. And he keeps pulling us back. I'm going to give you ways to remember. I'm going to give you things that you do on a regular basis to stop in your crazy world and to remember. And this is a moment to tell your kids about. You know, to remind them what you're doing, to explain to them, to pass on your faith to them. You know, I, 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 I almost don't want to use this illustration because it's, it's so, uh, it, it's such a small thing in comparison. But I've, uh, I've been a Mets fan since I was uh, six years old. Uh, when I was five, we moved from Florida to Connecticut. In Florida, at the time, 1985, when I was five years old, if you're doing the math, I'm 41, um, there were no professional baseball teams in Florida. Florida was a place that all the teams went to to do their spring training, and um, I had no interest in baseball at five years old, but there were no Florida teams. So my grandfather didn't have a team he rooted for. My dad rooted for the Royals because he liked George Brett. And I was like, that's an old weird dude, I don't care, right? And so when I moved to Connecticut in 1985, there was an up-and-coming team with Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden and Howard Johnson. And, uh, and you know, you, I could continue on. I could do probably the whole roster even now. Uh, and in 1986, the Mets won the World Series. And so I became a Mets fan. It was just like an amazing time to, like, join this awesome team to root for and to watch these incredible players. And I, I literally, this is the first time in my life I chose to become a fan of a, of a specific team. And you're like, where's this going, bro? We don't care. Um, So 1986, I became a Mets fan. And hardcore, I just went all in. And all the kids at school in Connecticut were either Red Sox fans or Yankees fans. And I was just this weirdo from Florida who loved the Mets. So you fast forward a couple years of being a fan. And in 1989, uh, my dad, he was running a construction project. He, He had his own business. He was a doing construction for a wealthy person working on their home. And there was a pool enclosure, their house. It was a wood-framed pool enclosure with glass. So it kind of looked like, um, you know, you kind of see in it, and it, it kind of was like just an uh, indoor pool connected to this really uh, expensive home. So my dad's up on top of the pool enclosure inspecting some things and looking at whether they need to fix some stuff. And he stepped on a beam that had rotted, rotted out, and he fell through the pool enclosure he fell like about 30 feet uh, through a couple panes of glass and landed uh, on the deck on the concrete next to the pool. And he, al- he almost died. He broke his back. He shattered his wrist. Uh, just, I remember the, after the surgery, there were just pins like sticking out. When he was doing his rehab, they had to like rubber band his fingers for like a time because they weren't, wouldn't work. 
Um, he, he's great now. Like, it, it sounds like it just ruined everything. It, when you're nine, it ruins everything. It was 1989. I was nine years old. Uh, and so I'm in the hospital the day that this happened. And when you're nine years old, this is a gigantic deal. Your dad almost just died. And he is doing terrible. And they don't know what to tell you when you're nine. They go, well, we think things are going to be okay. We're not really sure. Just like that kind of instability for a nine-year-old is just not great. So I have this like very vivid memory of my mom picking us up from daycare and like just weeping and then telling us what happened. And then we all went to the hospital and uh, it was touch and go. He wasn't even awake. And I, I have this other memory of during that hospital stay, kind of walking to the other section of the room. So he was in a, in a room where there would have been like three beds. The other two beds were empty. Uh, and in the corner was a, was a TV. And I was really like, wanted to watch the Mets game. So I just kind of walked away from the group and turned it on. And of course, Daryl Strawberry hits two home runs. And I thought, this is God reaching out to me. I, nine years old, your theology is a little wonky. Just throwing that out, <laughs> throwing that out there. Um, and so it's funny because like, when people ask me why I like the Mets, I just go, "Well, you know, like it was 1986 when I moved to Connecticut." But like, but in reality, there were moments where, like, the Mets were very like important in my life. Right? A couple years later, my 12-year-old birthday, I re- took four of my friends uh, to the park, and we had my 12-year-old birthday at Shea Stadium. It was during the Bobby Bonilla era, which is um, a whole nother. I'm a real fan, okay? <laughs> made, it, made it through that time. There were these markers, these moments in my life that I can connect to this team that I have a lot of love for. Um, and I wouldn't sit down and explain that to everybody. If they ask you why you like the Mets, you just say, because like, I, I picked them when I was a kid. But in reality, there were moments where like, there was big moments where the Mets were a part of my life. And... Um, and it's a weird thing to explain to somebody because you're like, that's just bizarre. Like, sports did that for you? Yes, it did. Um, but I think that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, look, you need to, every once in a while, make sure that you explain to your kids that you were in captivity. You were a slave. There was no way out. There was nothing was going to change. You were going to make bricks for the rest of your life until you died. Your entire life was going to be under the thumb of somebody who hated you and wanted to see all your, you know, your people die. And then God intervened. And he was there. And he did mighty acts. Things that we still, you know, can't even really explain. You won't even believe me when I tell you what God did. And he did this and he did that and he did that. And you go through all the plagues and you go through all of the getting out of town and eventually go through walking across a, an ocean. And you remind your kids why God is so important to your family, and to you personally, and you invite them into that same relationship with God, with Jesus. And I would love to say that my son is a Mets fan, and he is not. His mother has, uh, you know, poisoned him to be a Red Sox fan. (laughs) Let's keep it down, okay? She's also a Patriots fan, which, that's a whole other story, okay? Um, we have to make sure that we're explaining why God, who has done amazing feats for his people and in our lives personally, is important 
to us. And if you're not sharing the story of how God has intervened in your own life with your own family, you're missing an opportunity to share a legacy of how powerful he can be and what he can accomplish. To be able to sit down with your own kids and your own relatives and your own siblings and your own, and to remember that he rescued you from slavery, that he brought you out of sin, that your life would be completely different if he hadn't rescued you, if he hadn't done those acts of power in your life. You think about where you, know, you would be without Jesus. You know, and I have a friend, she's a, a twin, and you know, she talks about this, like, hey, my sister has gone on a completely different path than me, and I've gone on a completely different path, and we're literally the same. Like, physically we are the same, and yet I have met Jesus and she did not, and here's the difference in our lives. Like, we got to tell that story and tell that story and keep telling that story and remember to tell that story and to continue to tell that story. And that's what he's explaining to the, to the Israelites here. I want you to stop and remember and take a week and get rid of the yeast because literally that's what you had to do to escape Egypt. And I want you to tell everyone what I did and the power that I displayed and how I care about my people and how I want to free people from slavery and I want to invite you in newer generations who didn't know that that moment of power into that same relationship that I offered to your parents and grandparents and, and grandparents' grandparents. Verse 11, after the Lord brings you into the land of Can- the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised an oath to you and your ancestors, you are to, do, to, to give over to the Lord as a, sorry, the first offspring of every womb, all the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord, redeem them with a lamb, every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break the neck, redeem every firstborn among you. And you're like, that's a really weird thing. What is he saying? And it's really simple. When you worship God, he expects your first and your best. One of the things that displeases God the most is when we give him our leftovers and our worst. There's another moment in Scripture where one of the prophets calls out the people of Israel and says, you guys are playing games. You go through your flocks, and you don't take the best. You take the ones that are sick, the ones that are maimed, the ones that are lame, and you bring them in, and you put them on the altar to give to God. And he says, and he doesn't want those offerings. He doesn't want that worship. He wants your first, and he wants your best. He wants you to consecrate your firstborn, not not to kill your firstborn, but to consecrate your firstborn and to consecrate the firstborn of every womb knowing that he's the one who's given you that gift. I mean, so back then, money wasn't a thing. What made you wealthy was the livestock you had, the gold and silver that you had. These were the things that made you wealthy. On the way out, they were given all the gold and silver. The other thing that made them wealthy was their flocks and their herds. To consecrate the first and the best to God every single time put him at the top and was a reminder to them of what he had done and how important he was. And I just want to stop and say, like, I've been, let's see, been digging in to our financials as a church, just the raw data. Because in September, we're going to have a meeting and we're going to invite everybody to hear about what we're doing for the, for the year. And I'm going to, you know, present where we're at as a church and explain some of the stuff to you. So you can look forward to that. It's going to be really fun. Elaine is clapping. Okay. You know, I asked the question. I think there are a lot of people in this church that give their first and their best. I think there are. I think there are a lot of people that sacrifice. 
to see the ministry of this church move forward. I'm amazed at the generosity of a, a really a, a sizable amount of people. But there are a lot of us who come here and all we do is take. We don't give our first and we don't give our best. We don't give our first and our best to, to serve here, to pick up some chairs and to put some things away and to show up here early and to stay late. We don't give our first and our best to, you know, be part of what we're doing with kids or to be part of the welcoming team. We don't give our first and our best when we give our tithes and offerings to this church. We give what's left over at best. And I'm not saying this because I want to raise money for the church. We are doing great. I'm not saying this because I, I, I need more. I don't need more. Whatever God gives us, we're going to be stewards of, and we're going to maximize that to its full capacity. But there's a lot of us who give nothing or give a very little bit or give what's just left over at the end of the day for us. And this is something that God installed for the Israelites to remember that their first and their best is what he wants, not their leftovers and not their worst. I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad. I'm encouraging you to look at your life and to prioritize it and to say, what does it look like for me to give my first to God and my best to God. It means you make decisions based on what you want to give and the generosity that you have in your relationship with Jesus as opposed to letting that be the last thing on the list. It's the first thing on the list. That's what God is saying here. And those of you who understand this concept and are applying it, thank you. And those of you who aren't, this is an invitation into making God primary in your life. This is what it looks like to worship. It's not, by the way, just money or just serving. It's like when we show up in this room, are we ready to worship? Are we ready to, to sing at the top of our lungs and exclaim what God has done in our lives? Are we ready to engage after this is over by engaging new people who are here visiting this church? Or are we just going to go right back to our little friends and make sure that we connect with the person that we want to see and we miss the idea that there are people, visitors here among us who need to be welcomed in and to feel like they're home? The first and the last is a concept that goes all the way through Scripture. You can see it not only in Adam and Eve's life, but their kids' lives. Where, you know, you have the first murder because of jealousy, because of an offering that was not the first and the best. And it continues on all the way through. And it's something we always have to struggle with. Because given to ourselves, we go back to selfishness. We go back to serving ourselves. We go back to thinking like we're the center of the universe and this is a way to prioritize God and to make him first. So if you're like, what am I supposed to do? Well, join a service team. Like, give. Like, actually decide what you're going to give and give it with joy because you get to be generous in giving that gift. We don't want any gift that comes into this church financially that's not given with absolute joy. If you don't push that button or write that check, or hand over what it, whatever it is that God has asked you to give with joy to serve Jesus, we don't want that. But there's an opportunity here for us to continue to remember that our first and our best is what God wants from us. Not only in the way that we raise our kids, not only in the way that we look at everything we own, not only in the way that we look at our gifts that he's given us, that we give back to the church, our time that is so precious to us, all of those things are things that we can leverage for Jesus. And by the way, we have a thousand kids right now that are not dedicated to Christ yet. And we've been begging people to get in touch with us so we could, could pray over their, their kids and to dedicate them to the Lord. And please do that because we 
have like a backlog of like 150 kids from COVID. So let's do that too. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? I want you to say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. He, he brought justice about for his people who were being murdered for 80 years. This is why I sacrificed to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. The, the story of the Exodus is not about it's not about Israel. It's not about Egypt. It's not about Pharaoh. It's about God. It's his story. It's the story of a God who loves his people, who wants to redeem his people, who wants to teach his people how to worship, who wants to teach his people how to be in relationship with him, who is not okay with allowing justice, to, uh, injustice to continue. It's a God who values justice and who loves fiercely people. And he's reaching to them the whole time to draw them out of Egypt. But now he's just beginning to see that there's another thing that has to happen. He can pull his people out of Egypt through all of these miracles, but there's going to be a long process here of actually getting Egypt out of his people. Right? You can take people out of Egypt, but to get the Egypt out of them, it's a whole nother long process. And you're like, dude, we've only got like two weeks left. How are we going to do that? Uh, this year is Exodus 1. We're only getting through the out of the sea, okay? So next year we'll finish the rest of the story. But this God loves you, and he wants to redeem you, and he wants to pull you out of slavery, and he wants to see you live the best life, the one that's, as Jesus would call, the fullest life possible. That life includes you worshiping the God who created you and who loves you. It involves you giving your first and your best. It involves you stopping in the midst of the craziness that you live in to worship. It, it involves you saying yes to Jesus personally and not just you know, sliding into the community of a church and, and kind of trying to live incognito. Right? This is the story of a God who loves his people and redeems them from slavery. And it's the same story that we are talking about every single week here. You know, that lamb that they slaughtered, and the blood that they put on the door frames and doorposts, that was not accidental. There would come, way after this, a lamb who would go and spill his blood, who would forgive the sins of the entire world, who would bring us into relationship with him, and it would be another moment of God redeeming his people, drawing them out of slavery, and continuing to, to redeem them through that process. That's what's going on here in Exodus. We've got two more weeks. We're going to get them out of the ocean here, out of the Red Sea. Um, but again, I want to encourage you to make it personal, to decide if you're giving your first and your best, to make sure that you're stopping in your crazy schedule to worship. And if there's a moment that you need to talk to somebody about that, our prayer station is right over here. You can talk to me on the way out. We want to make sure that you get this, this figured out. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you are our Passover lamb. That when we 
fall upon your mercy. Receive the gift that you've offered to us, the forgiveness of sin. We've allowed your blood to be the thing that passes over, that God's wrath passes over us. It allows us to be in relationship with you. Thank you that you, you love us, that you redeem us, that you pull us out of slavery, you draw us out. God, I pray that as we find our way out of the life that we lived before we knew, knew you, that you would be gentle with us as you take that life out of us. That as we leave Egypt and you begin to work on taking Egypt out of us, God, that you would be gentle with us. Help us not to be selfish and self-serving. Help us to give our first and our best with joy. God, we're, we're, we're very imperfect. We're, we're sinful. We go back to the things that uh, we relied on, the things that hold us down, the you know, the, the selfishness that's in all of us. We go back to those things. And, and God, would you just continue to give us chances to remember what it is that you did for us? I pray that this would be a personal thing for everyone in this church. And that as a community, we would also worship you in a way that brings you honor, that gives you the first and the best. We thank you that you didn't leave us in slavery. In Jesus' name, amen.